Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Aaron Powell. And I'm Trevor Burris. Joining us today is Eric Mack. He's a professor of philosophy at Tulane University. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Really glad to be here. Today we are discussing your new book titled Just Libertarianism. And so I thought we, Trevor and I, spend a lot of time talking about libertarianism on Free Thoughts in all sorts of ways. But, but given the subject of your book, I thought it might be valuable for us to take a big step back and, and approach libertarianism from a much higher level and kind of a more abstract philosophical level than we often do. And so let me start by asking you then in the context of political philosophy, what is libertarianism? Well, um, I think at least as a first approximation, it's the view that individual liberty is the primary, if not the only, uh, political principle. It's the only principle that justifies the characteristic action of uh, political institutions, which is, if one's a libertarian, uh, to protect liberty. And uh, liberty here is understood as something like or exactly um, the capacity of people to have discretionary control over their own lives, over their own person, and over their own legitimate possessions. So liberty uh, requires and presupposes uh, that each person has these types of basic moral claims to her own life and to her own person and to uh, the objects that she has legitimately acquired and has a right to the discretionary control of those things. In in the broader context of political philosophy, where does libertarianism fit in or maybe a better way of asking this is, is, is it really a product of Enlightenment era thinking or is there anyone in say Rome or Middle huh. Ages who, huh. who could be huh. called a libertarian? Huh. Huh. Well, you know, I wish not too far in the distant past, I did some work on the Dutch uh, political philosopher Hugo Grotius. So he's a late 17th century late 16th century, early 17th century figure. And uh, at that time, people still argued primarily by citing ancient sources, which presumably had authority. And there are extraordinary number of quotations in uh, Grotius back to uh, uh, Roman philosophers, especially Seneca. So Seneca looks like he was enormously influential. And maybe as we go along and we talk about Hume, and talk about uh, Hayek, we'll see that a lot of the doctrines that Hume and then later Hayek have uh, can be found in Seneca. So uh, there is a type of uh, – and the main, the main doctrine that I have in mind when I say that is the idea that uh, human beings uh, require for their existence and happiness social cooperation – and that social cooperation can only be had if people abide by certain uh, constraints in their behavior towards one another. And in Hume, this turns out to be uh, uh, keeping your hands off other people's property, keeping your hands off what other people have acquired through trade, uh, and fulfilling your promises. And the notion is that these are the fundamental principles of justice. And so in Seneca, you get these doctrines. And Seneca himself, and Crotius also uh, cites uh, a variety of actually church fathers. So if I can just add one more person, there's a fellow named uh, John 
Christanthem, uh, Saint Christanthem, who is a, uh, a bishop in uh, uh, Constantinople. And he argued that uh, uh, one of the crucial proofs for the existence of God, really, was the existence of the Mediterranean, because the Mediterranean made trade possible and trade uh, exemplified uh, cooperation and friendship among people and ought always to be encouraged. So there are all these, uh, there are all these uh, uh, glimmerings of uh, certain elements of a libertarian perspective that goes back uh, at least to uh, the Hellenistic period. I, that puts uh, me in mind of um, there's the, the Jains in ancient India um, had a similar to that that meditation that the Mediterranean makes trade possible. They they uh -huh. held up um, merchants as like one of the only really acceptable positions because it was the uh, only one that was nonviolent. That your interactions yes, with others were nonviolent. Interesting. Yeah, I didn't know about that, but uh, I'm I'm sure we could find that among all sorts of perceptive people. Uh, uh, and then also. Uh, uh, there's obviously connected with this is uh, various notions of the origins of property uh, and the value of property as a social institution. Uh, and a lot of this is carried up into uh, people like uh, Grotius. Again, I'm trying to remember his dates. I think it's 1588 to something, 1583 to 1643, something like that, 45. So he's uh, somewhat earlier than Hobbes. Uh, but he's very non-Hobbesian because he has a sort of proto-Lockean notion of uh, of people's rights. So I I want to talk through this this tradition because much of your mm -hmm. book is is working through the intellectual tradition that is libertarianism. Yes. But but I wanted to take a moment to get you to clarify something sure. um, for for our listeners that you said at the beginning, which was the thing that distinguishes libertarianism as a political philosophy from other political philosophies is that it places liberty as the highest political good if not the only political good and so that that notion of like a political good like what a political good is because someone can hear that and say well wait a second there's yeah. lots of things that matter liberty matters yeah. but there's lots of other stuff that matters too and should that stuff not be the concern of politics as yeah. well yeah uh let me let me remind, remind you that i said uh, as the fundamental political principle uh i think it's dangerous to talk about it as a good uh, partly because one then says, well, there are all these other goods. Um, the distinctive thing about liberty is that it's what each of us can demand of one another. Uh, there are all sorts of other things that are good for us or good for particular people, uh, but they cannot demand it with, with moral propriety, demand it from one another. So the special thing uh, about liberty is that uh, – um, Receiving liberty from other people, getting liberty from other people simply requires that they not impinge upon one, that they not trespass upon one. It simply requires that they leave one alone to live in peace. Uh, so liberty makes a very modest claim on other people. Uh, it only – it doesn't require that people give up their own projects or their own pursuits. It doesn't require that people have to serve your ends. It just requires – that they people have to not interfere with you in your decisions about your own person, your own liberty, your own possessions, and so it's this—it's in some sense a very weak claim. It's a stringent claim, um, 
but uh, uh, the case for uh, my demanding from other people liberty uh, is fundamentally more strong than the case for my demanding from other people uh, that they assist me, that they serve me, that they make me happy or anything of that sort. Uh, and since it's the only thing that has the status of something that each of us can demand of others, it's the only thing that each of us can coercively require of others. It's the only thing that uh, uh, the only thing that justifies us in ever using coercion against others is uh, if they refuse to give us liberty. Now, people who might be listening to this and thinking who are not libertarians and thinking, well, that just explained everything about libertarians, which is they, they don't mm -hmm. care about helping people. They don't care yeah. about uh, assisting and, and extremely atomistic, just want to live their lives and keep your hands off my stuff. Uh, is that accurate as a portrayal? You kind of, you know, some people could have heard what you just said and said it sounded just like that. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's not. Um, uh, first of all, of course, the claim to liberty is not a claim to uh, uh, live as a hermit. I mean, uh, it, if you choose to live as a hermit, uh, that would be protected by your claim to liberty. But the crucial thing about liberty is that you're allowed to associate with other people who you choose to associate with on your own terms. You're not required to uh, serve or associate with people who – uh, are living a different sort of life. You're required to make them, you're, you're required to allow them to live the lives they choose. Uh, but, uh, um, but you're uh, uh, in no way uh, is, uh, are you limiting what, how other people can act? And now to get to the other part, um, liberty is not at all the entirety of, uh, of how you sh how one should live one's life, uh, uh, it would be extremely ridiculous life if you went around saying my sole concern is to maintain my liberty with respect to other people. Uh, you want everyone has a claim to liberty precisely because that's what gives everybody the right and the possibility of living a valuable life. And living a valuable life includes many many more things than just being at liberty. Uh, including very, very especially uh, all sorts of social relationships. So uh, uh, the individualism that's involved here, and there is a strong individualism that's involved here, is an individualism that says to people, you may proceed to try to live the life that you think will produce the greatest amount of happiness or well-being for you, but one important piece of advice, which can be given by anybody, whether they're libertarians or not, is that uh, that friendship and standing in loving relationships with other people and standing uh, in various sorts of community with other people, all of that is crucial uh, for almost everybody to a desirable life. Uh, but uh, the way one can have a life with that sort of desirable relationships uh, – depends upon uh, one being free to choose the terms and the relationships that one wants to have with other people. Libertarianism is something of a big tent. There's kind of – there's a spectrum of views within it from 
you know, outright anarchists on maybe the one end through to say classical liberals on the other, although I think you you kind of distinguish classical liberals from libertarianism proper. But can you tell us like what that what that spectrum looks like and where the, sure. the disagreement is between the people with on along it? Sure. Sure. Um, so I would say first of all that the 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 anarchists that we're talking about are uh, are uh, uh, within the libertarian portion of this spectrum that runs from libertarianism to robust classical liberalism to somewhat less robust classical liberalism. And uh, the key, of course, that spectrum, and then I'll come back to the anarchism issue. The key is that let's call them hardcore libertarians uh, think that liberty is not only the primary uh, fundamental political principle, but it's the only political principle. It's the only thing that uh, uh, may be uh, coercively required of other people. What can be the only thing that can be coercively required of other people is that they respect your liberty, uh, and they interpret uh, hardcore libertarians interpret uh, uh, liberty uh, in a way that excludes requiring the service of other people. So, um, liberty is understood as merely requiring that you be left alone in your voluntary relationships with other people. Uh, there can be complications so that for instance, someone like Nozick or myself or people like Locke, um, uh, also defend a certain type of Lockean proviso, which says that if you act in certain sorts of ways that preclude other people from ever having any opportunities, uh, then they have a just complaint against you. And those sorts of actions can be uh, uh, forbidden. Uh, but as you move over into sort of classical liberal territory, you might have people who endorse uh, uh, a social safety net of some sort and think that it's either legitimate to compromise people's liberty to require them to support a social surf uh, safety net, or they might have some sort of modification of the notion of liberty that allows them to say that a genuine respect for liberty requires that there be a social sa safety net. So um, there are there's a range of marginal adjustments away from hardcore libertarianism. And as you make those marginal adjustments, you move more to a classical liberal stance. And if you make more of those adjustments, for instance, get to the point of saying that, um, uh, our, that the demand for liberty is consistent with requiring people to pay taxes to produce public goods – then you've moved over to a sort of a, a, a less robust classical liberalism position, maybe what we should call a small state position. Someone like Richard Epstein would be an example. Uh, so that's the spectrum between uh, 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 very hardcore libertarians, classical liberals who will allow a greater uh, range for certain sorts of coercive actions, and then small state folks who may want to call themselves libertarians, maybe they should be called libertarians, but they're, they're further away from hardcore libertarians than robust classical liberalism. 
So there's that. It, on with respect to the anarchism, uh, it's only going to be. I think it's fair to say it's only going to be hardcore libertarians who are who favor anarchism rather than minimal government. Uh, and there, there's extremely complicated uh, set of arguments. Uh, the anarchists argue primarily that if you are against coercion, then first of all, you have to be against coercive taxation. And so small state classical liberalism is out. Also, if you're against coercion, the anarchists argue you have to be against the coercion that suppresses competitors with the state. Uh, agencies who th put themselves forward as organizations that will provide you with the service of protecting your rights. Anarchists argue that uh, uh, when the state suppresses those potential competitors, it violates those people's rights. And anarchists argue that uh, when you have only a coercive monopoly supplying certain services, those services are going to be shoddier and more costly. So there's that special debate between the anarchists and the uh, the uh, minimal state libertarians, which I talk about in uh, in one of the later chapters of the book. Now you mentioned that you mentioned Locke, and earlier you mentioned Hobbes. And since we're yeah. kind of, we talked about anarchy, yeah, how do, where does Locke yeah. and maybe Hobbes fit into this? Because yeah. he gets uh, at least a lot of people who like classical liberalism and libertarianism talk about Locke a bunch. Um, where does he fit into it? And also for the anarchism element. So it seems that both Hobbes and Locke were trying to justify the existence of a state, yes. thinking that the state required justification, which, yes. which I'm not sure was a very popular view in say 200 years before either of them, that the state even needed justification whatsoever. Um, but, but, yeah. How much is also part of this yeah. question of what is what are human beings like naturally without the state, Good. Good. Uh, right? Because I I feel like Hobbesians believe that that human beings are are kind of mean to each other, and Lockeans tend to believe that we're more cooperative together. Uh, and and how does libertarianism tend to look at those issues? So the, I think the crucial thing that Hobbes and Locke have in common is that they deny the existence of natural rulership, right? And so uh, uh, no one is born a king, no one is born a subject, uh, no one is born a ruler, no one is born a master, no one else is born a servant or a slave. So uh, uh, that's the crucial thing they have in common. Uh, and the crucial thing about the state of nature, which is <laughs> the uh, is thought of at least analytically as the origin, the, uh, the, the uh, baseline from which we have to operate, the crucial thing about the state of nature is that there isn't any state in the state of nature. And uh, we have to, uh, if there's going to be a state, it has to be created. And we now have to know what the justification of creating a state would be and what sort of state could possibly be justified. Uh, the crucial thing about Hobbes versus Locke is that for Hobbes, um, in the state of nature, there aren't any principles of justice. There aren't, properly speaking, any rights. Uh, the state of nature is for Hobbes a type of moral free-for-all. And because it's a state of moral free-for-all, uh, it's a, a horrendous state, right? It's a state in which nobody ever 
hesitates to do something because they think it might be unjust <laughs> because they nothing is unjust and everybody knows that other people realize that nothing is unjust and so one has this spiral downward uh into violence and the war of all upon all and so for hobbes the only way out is a sovereign who not only rules in some way but the sovereign uh the sovereign gets to create justice because there isn't any justice outside of the will of the sovereign and so if the sovereign the sovereign creates justice by issuing commands and whatever the sovereign commands is justice and therefore the sovereign uh, cannot possibly act unjustly for hobbes we have to create a sovereign because the alternative is this horrible state of nature but once one has a sovereign there is no way to complain as a matter of justice about what the sovereign does because justice is nothing but the word of the sovereign. So Locke is responding to that uh, and to other people who hold that position. Uh, and the crucial thing in Locke is this idea that, as he puts it, the state of nature has a law of nature to govern it. And the law of nature is a moral law, right? And it's the law that primarily consists of people having the sort of basic rights that I was talking about before. Uh, and uh, Locke's view is that uh, uh, precisely because each person has, in a sense, a life of his own to lead, is precisely because each person has goals of their own, including for Locke, the goal of getting to heaven, uh, that each person needs discretionary control over their own life in order to best pursue his or her goals. And because people need this discretionary control, the appropriate response of each of us to other people, even in the state of nature, is to allow people to go their own way, not to interfere with people. Also, of course, to interact with them, but only on voluntary terms. And so for Locke, there are these natural rights. And Locke, however, thinks that, as many people would think, that uh, although people may have some regard for these natural rights in the state of nature, there's also a lot of problems with people being the judges of their own cases. There's a lot of problems about there being honest disagreements about whether certain rights have been violated or not. And Locke thinks that the obvious solution to this is the creation of political society. But political society is only given the task of better formulating and better protecting the rights that exist in the state of nature. And so if political society or the government that political society establishes violates those rights, it's acting unjustly and may justly be removed, eliminated. Uh, and so for Locke, there's a very, very strong doctrine of just resistance, just violent resistance to unjust authority, whereas for Hobbes, it's totally impossible that there be just resistance to unjust authority. It's impossible for any authority to be unjust, according to Hobbes. So uh, it's with Locke and maybe some of these earlier people, some earlier people, that uh, that we get this uh, notion. Some of this was present in some of the Thomistic tradition, 
It's with Locke primarily, though, we get this notion that uh, that there's certain fundamental principles about how individuals ought to behave towards one another, certain fundamental moral constraints on how people ought to conduct themselves in their interactions with other people. And everybody is subject to those constraints, uh, including any political authority that is created. And so if a political authority acts in some way that would be perceived as criminal, if done by a local hoodlum, it's also criminal when done by a king. And so these great passages in Locke where he says, you know, what's the difference between a, a local thief and, uh, uh, and a king? Well, a king has a crown, the king has a lot of followers, but that doesn't make the crimes that the king commits any less crimes. And so once again, that's, that's the basic Hobbes-Locke story. And Locke, uh, I hesitate a little bit to, to say that he's a he's a, a stat, he's a uh, Enlightenment person. He's there at the very beginning of the Enlightenment, right? So he's one of the people who sort of creates the Enlightenment. He's not uh, uh, he's not uh, living in an age of Enlightenment uh, uh, as yet. Uh, he's a major force, not only in terms of political theory, but also in terms of his uh, epistemology for the Enlightenment. So let's then turn to the next the next thinker that you explore in your walk through the major figures in the history of libertarian political thought is is John Stuart Mill. So what did he contribute to this kind of strain that Locke got started? Okay. So actually I would I would put you before Mill and I would think that Mill is actually much more I mean Hume is much more important but but let's talk okay. about about uh about Mill. Uh, I should say that in the book, uh, I start off by saying that there are two major lines of philosophical thought that uh, contribute to libertarianism. And it's not that every person who follows those lines of thought is a libertarian, but the, the lines of thought underwrite libertarianism. One is this natural rights view that we first find in, in a full-blown version in Locke. So that's this natural rights approach. Uh, another approach is what I call cooperation to mutual advantage. Uh, and to stick in Hume here, I th- Hume is the great presenter of that. And uh, uh, in the 20th century, Noza carries on the Lockean natural rights approach. And in the 20th century, Hayek carries on the Humean cooperation to mutual advantage approach. When I started writing the book, I was focusing on those two approaches, this natural rights approach and this cooperation to mutual advantage approach. And I wanted to show the relationship between them and their compatibility uh, to a very considerable extent. But there's another third type of approach, which I call the indirect utilitarian approach, uh, which also has played a considerable role in, in attempts to underwrite libertarianism. And so Mill fits into this indirect utilitarian approach. And the other person I mentioned is, uh, who I like more, <laughs> is uh, Herbert Spencer. So if I can say, go through this. So for Mill, Mill is deeply different on fundamental levels from Locke. Uh, Mill, as almost everybody knows, uh, uh, thinks that the correct and fundamental and really the only 
fundamental moral principle is uh, the greatest happiness principle. Uh, and the greatest happiness principle tells us that uh, uh, between two states of affairs in society, the one that, it, that has the greatest aggregate happiness minus aggregate unhappiness, the one where the net gain in happiness is greatest, that's the best social state. And when you're deciding how to act, you should always perform the action which will most likely induce that best social state. So we all ought to be running around <laughs> doing the best we can to figure out how we can make the most happiness in the world, even if generating that happiness requires diminishing some people's happiness. So this is Mill's utilitarianism. But, <laughs> but Mill is also a friend of liberty and individualism. And so at least in parts in Mill, and certainly this is a major part of Mill's important essay on liberty, Mill seems to say, you know, it's a mistake for us to always be thinking about which particular action will most promote the aggregate good, most promote the aggregate happiness. What we really want to do is think of the social conditions that on the whole and for the most part produce happiness. And in some places, he says, the social condition that most produces happiness is liberty. In other places, he says, the social condition that most produces happiness is security. They're actually pretty much the same. They're both cases in which people are not subject to interference. And so sometimes Mill says, uh, what we should do instead of trying in each of our particular actions to promote the greatest happiness, we should instead promote the general social condition, which if held too rigidly, will produce over the long run the most happiness and Mill's view in On Liberty is uh, that general social condition, which over the long run will produce the most happiness, is liberty. We should not violate people's liberty in particular cases, even when it seems as though violating it in those particular cases will promote the most happiness, because the most important thing, the thing with the greatest, deepest utility is that we protect people's liberty, because in some way, the protection of liberty is always going to produce in the long run the greatest amount of happiness. Or we should always protect people's security. Uh, so I myself am not a fan of this view, <laughs> but, uh, but there are very smart people who propose this view. And uh, it's also, as I said, the view that, uh, uh, that is uh, developed in a much more libertarian way by uh, Herbert Spencer. And, yeah, we'll, we'll uh, talk about him for a bit because most people yeah. know his name now, unfortunately, as yeah, yeah. A, a social the, Darwinist who the wanted- most the most unfairly maligned person in the history of ideas. Yeah, well, he was a big he was a big deal for a while too. He was probably considered the most famous and most impressive. Uh, uh, philosopher, not just political philosopher. Yeah, I uh, I was struck several years ago. I read Will Durant's story of philosophy, which was uh -huh. written in like the twenties or thirties, and he has, I think, almost nothing on Hume and Kant, but he has a very long chapter on uh, Herbert Spencer, uh, and it uh, was it was striking how much this guy like his importance, and then he just kind of vanished. 
Yeah, yeah. I um, and and um, that caused Spencer. I mean, not just sort of a type of personal uh, disappointment, but uh, uh, in ways that I don't fully understand. He had notions about progress, <laughs> and that uh, that he was. He was on the side of history, right? Yeah. And then all of a sudden, uh, uh, history turns against him. And uh, he was a very unhappy guy, uh, even more so in his old age than as a young man. But Spencer's, Spencer's social statics, especially the early editions, when he's still very, very radical as a libertarian, uh, pretty much as a libertarian, uh, starts out just as, you, as Mill saying, look, the fundamental principle – principle of morality is the happiness principle. Uh, that's our ultimate standard. Happiness understood as the aggregate happiness. Um, but he then says a whole bunch of things that uh, you'd also find in Hayek. Uh, he says, uh, uh, but actually each person has a different conception of happiness. There's really no one common conception of happiness. Each person has a different conception of happiness at different times of their lives. There's no way that we can compare the value of these different types of happiness. And so there's no way that we can really say if A's happiness goes up five units at the expense of B's happiness going down two units, that the world is overall better off. We can't say that because we can't compare these different types of happiness. And therefore, the only thing that we can say is we want a world in which everybody's happiness rises. And the only way to have a world in which everybody's happiness rises is to have a world in which nobody is allowed to pursue their happiness in ways that prevents other people from pursuing their happiness. And he calls that the law of equal freedom. Right? So we want to have the law of equal freedom, and that's the fundamental condition. This sounds now like Mill. That's the fundamental position uh, condition we have to bring about and enforce in order over the long term to have uh, the greatest chance for the greatest happiness being attained. Now, does that uh, make him – so he is a util or consequentialist of some sort. Yes. 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 And, you know, if you – you know, you'll know, you both will know that, uh, uh, that it, uh, uh, it's, it's really Bentham that uh, uh, is the prime – is the real true example of the standard utilitarian who says – always do the thing in the particular case which will most generate happiness and it's bentham that uh, spencer attacks and he calls this the expedient this is the expediency utilitarianism but spencer says i'm going to enunciate what he calls rational utilitarianism and rational utilitarianism is this utilitarianism which uh takes account of the general, all sorts of general facts about human nature and social interaction. And this is what ultimately leads him to this conclusion that uh, uh, the only thing we can give as a formula and a guide for increasing aggregate utility over the long run is um, is this principle of equal, this law of equal freedom. It's a little bit more complicated than that, but uh, the first principle that has to be enforced and which people have to evolve to the point where they naturally abide by it is this law of equal freedom. Then I'll just quickly mention, then he says, I'm going to talk about the rights that are implied by the law of equal freedom. And uh, those are rights primarily to, 
to, to liberty in the sense of, you know, just action, uh, its rights to control your body, its rights to, uh, he has writing in, in the early eight, 1850s, he says we have to, it, women have the same rights as men, of course, children have rights. <laughs> so it's, it's very, very radical. Um, and then, um, there are other components to it. Uh, um, uh, the one I'll mention now, which is highly relevant to the discussion we had about the anarchist versus non-anarchist, is uh, uh, he has a chapter in the early uh, edition of Social Statics called The Right to Ignore the State. So if you want to withdraw from association with the state, you have every right to do so. And so the American individual anarchists uh, thought that he was uh, <laughs> he, that he was a, a comrade on these matters. And uh, when he eliminated that chapter from later editions of the social statics, they felt that he had betrayed them as he had. <laughs> that that brings up like, the follow-up question because you kept you keep mentioning the early editions of social statics and those are the yeah. ones where we get the robust radical libertarian view. So yes. what yes. changed in the later editions besides the removal of this chapter? Um, um, the, uh, the other crucial, the other shocking chapter uh in the in the in the early editions and i say editions i don't know whether it really whether this chapter survived the first edition i'm not sure you know when the different editions took place um but it was at some point it was taken out yeah the other chapter that was removed was the chapter on the right to the earth uh where spencer argues that um that um the earth that is say all land all natural resources uh, are the joint property of all of mankind. And uh, although he thinks of it in terms of society by society, so all the natural resources of great in the area called Great Britain are really the uh, joint property of British society. And every one of us is an equal joint owner. Uh, and he has complicated arguments for why he draws that conclusion and he decides that uh, the way this should be worked out is that uh, if you and he's thinking mostly of an agricultural society if you want to make use of a certain amount of land then society will rent you that land uh, and, uh, uh, and part of the deal is that what you grow on the land through this contract that you have with society or what you produce from the mine through this contract that you have with society, that becomes your private property. But nobody ever acquires private property in raw material. That remains the property of society. Uh, and and in, in the book, I go on when I talk about uh, uh, late 20th century left libertarianism, I go back to Spencer and say Spencer is the source, the major source of this view. That is the view that uh, uh, everyone has rights over themselves and their own liberty, but there's some sort of initial, original, equal rights to the earth, right? And this, the problem with that sort of view, which I also talk about, is uh, uh the two things actually come into conflict. <laughs> there's, there's, there's no way to enforce uh, 
or uh, operationalize this idea of our equal joint right to natural resources in ways that uh, won't uh, infringe upon people's rights over themselves. And Hillel Steiner, uh, who's a, a very good friend of mine, uh, is to my mind the, the great 20th century representative of this uh, libertarianism. The essay, an essay on rights, is that his book? An essay on rights, is that the one you're yes, talking about? Yes, yeah. yes, yes. So an incredibly smart guy and there's a section in the book where I present his position uh, and then criticize it. And part of that is to try to show that uh, uh, this variation on libertarianism, which introduces this egalitarian notion of equal rights to raw material, um, won't fly. That uh, that uh, that that introduction of an egalitarian element. A deep egalitarian element cannot be made uh, consistent with uh, what Steiner would describe as uh, a doctrine of self-ownership. If we're talking about like left libertarianism in that regard, uh, you hear sort of the, these concerns about equality matter to left libertarians more, um, but it also seems to me that left libertarians care about power in a broader sense than just coming yes. from the government. Is that something yes. that libertarians should because of power from the corporations, power from yes. whoever? Yeah. So, so there are really two, two groups of people going under that rubric. Uh, there's people like Steiner uh, and s several other people. Um, uh, Peter Valentine uh, is one in the U.S. So there are those people who explicitly endorse um, uh, the idea that there's a – this, that the earth is either uh, originally jointly owned by everybody or everybody has is born with a right to an equal share. So that's this that's the let's call it the Spencer derived left libertarianism. Uh, and then there are people like Roderick Long and uh, uh, Gary Chartier, and they are more like this, 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 they may also be anarchists. I'm not sure all of them probably are, but they're descendants of these 19th century American individualist anarchists who were at least highly suspicious of any income that didn't derive from labor. So they're highly suspicious of rent income. They're highly suspicious of interest income. And there's also a general tendency to emphasize uh, maybe in some cases quite properly, the, um, the, the amount of income that corporations achieve through illicit monopolies, <laughs> monopolies that are, that are supported coercively by the state. So, so, and, and so they think that, uh, but the difference is I think those left libertarians, that second group, uh, uh, on ultimate principles are fully within what I would call the main libertarian camp. Uh, but they have uh, certain, they deviate by having these suspicions about uh, rental income or interest uh, income. Um, um, and other sources of power and control. Other sources yeah. of power too. And, and I think, at least some of them are uh, are more um, I don't know what you culturally uh, culturally left 
Yeah, um, that, that's probably true. Yeah. Um, so, although probably not all of them. So there are these two different types of left libertarians around. So I guess relatively quickly because we're we're drawing to our hour. Um, what Nozick and Hayek, as we move into the twentieth century, and as you said, they're kind of they're building. Each of them is building on one of these two forks and the kind of That's foundations. Right. That, what what do they specifically contribute? Yeah, good, good. So uh, one of the motives for writing the book was that I've done a lot of um, um, colloquia, uh, often through uh, IHS. Um, and other sorts of uh, organizations in which I, you know, will meet with uh, graduate students, and often in philosophy, sometimes political theory or legal theory. And uh, I've been impressed by the lack of depth of understanding of these two great thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think these both Nozick and, uh, and Hayek were incredibly, you know, brilliant and insightful. And uh, but but complex. And so those two chapters of the book, one, one chapter on libertarian foundations, which deals both with Nozick and Hayek, and then this chapter on property rights and economic justice. Uh, in both of those cases, I try to uh, uh, explain, uh, in some cases, maybe help out uh, each of these figures to show how interesting and deep their arguments are. In the case of Nozick, uh, 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 I tr try to develop his own arguments for uh, for what we can call Lockean natural rights, and clearly don't have time to talk about that, but uh, uh, it goes back to this. And I try to show that uh, Nozick sort of, at the end of the, I think at the end of the preface to Anarchy, State, and Utopia says, you know, one of the things this book doesn't do is give you a wholly worked out theory of people's natural rights. Isn't the, the, the line is something like there are words other than final words or something? Yes. Right? yes. Yeah. yeah, I love so that line. For some reason, people have taken this to mean, or they say they think it means, that he hasn't offered any arguments at all. <laughs> just the way people say that about Locke. They say Locke just asserts these rights. Uh, or Locke just says that God created these rights. None of these things are true. I mean, all these people are working pretty hard. And what I try to do really is is to lay out uh, as carefully as I can what Nozick's arguments for these rights are and compare those arguments and show how they're parallel to, but in some ways better than uh, John Rawls's arguments for his position, right? And so strategically there, the idea is, well, everyone recognizes in, perhaps in scare quotes, everyone recognizes that uh, Rawls is a great genius. What do you know? Nozick's arguments run Pretty along the too. same lines, but they're more they, – they better reach his conclusions than Rawls' comparable uh, arguments do. So that's one, one thing I do. Um, and for Hayek, who is, is, of course, all very complex in terms of economic theory, legal theory, just, just, justice theory, I, I don't think a lot of people really – Think of him as a political philosopher because he won the Nobel Prize in economics, but he probably did more political philosophy than anything else. Certainly, certainly from from the, the mid forties onward, and uh, um, and so I also try that foundations chapter to show how Hayek tries to defend what he calls these rules of uh, just conduct, uh, 
without making a moral argument because he grew up in Vienna in the 1920s when people thought you couldn't possibly make a moral argument about anything. So he thinks, well, I can't do that. But he has this very interesting idea about how um, um, if you make deep mistakes about the nature of society or the nature of law, you're going to be led to endorse certain values, which he thinks are false values. And if he can correct people's understanding about the nature of society and the nature of law, uh, then the values that have be, been dethroned by the mistaken social science will reemerge. And basically, the idea is he wants to show how a society of cooperation to mutual advantage, where people can live in peace and harmony with one another, while each retains their own personal goals and projects, he wants to show how such a society is possible, but only possible if it is based upon certain moral principles. And these moral principles are very much like the moral principles that Hume talks about, and in many ways, very much like the moral principles that Locke and Nozick talk about. So there's that, and then there's a chapter, uh, as I said, on property rights and, um, and uh, economic justice, and there I try to lay out uh, Nozick's arguments uh, for what he calls his historical entitlement theory, um, and uh, and Hayek's arguments, which are uh, uh, some of which are quite bad, I think, <laughs> uh, but some of which are better, where he attacks what he calls social justice, the notion of social justice. And this is this is not what we mean by social justice today, but where he attacks the idea that there is some sort of idea of of, of economic justice, which requires the state to step in and create certain particular types of distribution of wealth. And rather than that, he, like Nozick, endorses the view that essentially uh, what people acquire peacefully through their own efforts or through voluntary trade with one another, that is what their just holdings are. Uh, and it cannot at least be claimed that those holdings are unjust. And so there too, I work very hard at uh, at trying to uh, uh, give expression to uh, these ideas, and I think in a couple of cases, generous expression. Uh, so uh, to make available to people uh, uh, a better understanding of what both these guys were doing. So you have there's a there's a bonus chapter of this yes, book yes. Um, that that's available online as a PDF, and we'll put a link to that for our listeners in the show notes. That goes through some other arguments, um, Steiner's and I think David Schmidt's and Rasmussen denial, and some kind of more novel or outside of this main framework sorts of arguments. But setting setting those aside, and I encourage our listeners to go and check out that chapter because it's really interesting stuff. Um, Maybe close with are there new emerging novel or particularly interesting or promising arguments for libertarianism that you see developing now that you're you're excited about or think could be, you know, among these canonical ones at some point in the future? I guess my short answer is no. Um uh <laughs> so this puts me at odds with lots of uh 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 Younger than than I am, uh, uh, libertarian political philosophers who I admire and think are very very smart, 
But I think there's been uh, a movement uh, in the last at least 10 years, maybe more, um, to argue that, uh, to maintain that there isn't really much difference uh, between the moral views of uh, socialist theorists or uh, protectionist theorists or whatever, uh, and uh, libertarian or classical liberal theorists. Rather, this tendency has been to say, there's really just disagreement about the empirical facts. Uh, we all kind of agree morally on what a nice person is like, uh, and that, but some some nice people get the get the get economics wrong, or they get sociology wrong, or they get history wrong, and that's why they become uh, socialists or interventionists. And uh, we just have to help people see better. Uh, the conclusions that we all ought to draw, given our common uh, moral beliefs. I don't believe that. <laughs> I believe that there are these deep moral uh, divisions between people. Um, and I also believe that uh, one can rationally address these deep moral divisions, uh, um, although people's attachments to their own views may be strong enough that they refuse to change their minds no matter what. But I, so, so I'm in this way uh, a throwback uh, uh, to, uh, to the view that, uh, uh, and this is contrary to Hayek too, um, to the view that uh, there really is a deep divide between uh, uh, libertarian and classical liberal thinking and let's just call it socialist thinking on the other hand. And I think the fundamental dividing point is uh, between people who think that uh, uh, that it's right and proper uh, for individuals to pursue their own happiness and well-being and live their own lives, and that social order ought to accommodate this liberty of people to pursue their own lives. That's on the one hand, that's the good libertarian classical liberal side. And people on the other hand who think that uh, that's a completely uh, inadequate morality, that a really moral society will identify, you know, some great uh, radiant goal that we all ought to pursue and will direct people, channel people, or if necessary, force people to contribute to that radiant goal and uh uh and i'm an opponent of that and i think all the all the good historical people in in, in the uh the best historical people in uh, the libertarian and classical liberal view uh uh are opponents to that and so about the book i would say one of the things i try to do and i try to do it without too much of a heavy hand is to show that uh in all the people that i discuss including the people in that extra bonus chapter, the one persistent thing is this belief uh, uh, in individuals and individ the propriety of people pursuing their own happiness or their own well-being and the rejection of the idea that there's some sort of a higher social good that justifies stepping in and subordinating people to that alleged higher good. Thanks for listening. 
Free Thoughts is produced by Tess Terrible. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.